Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. Today, we'll talk to a Michelin inspector, a highly trained restaurant critic who goes undercover to decide which establishments get one, two, or even three stars. The anonymous inspections are one of the pillars of the Michelin Guide review process. Um, it guarantees that the inspector had the same experience as any other diner would. Then we'll hop in the passenger seat alongside Aida Molenkamp, a California native, who will lead us on a food-filled road trip from Los Angeles through Ventura and Santa Barbara all the way to Paso Robles. This is a road trip that once you do it, I'm pretty sure you're going to want to do like me and just do it over and over again. Plus, we'll talk to Scott Gatz of Q Digital, who explains why the Golden State is such an inviting destination for LGBTQ travelers. It's all coming up on California Now. Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. Our never-ending mission is to introduce you to some of the amazing people and places that make the Golden State such a fascinating destination. This is the part of the podcast where I usually introduce our next guest, but I won't be doing that today. Not really. That's because the man you're about to meet is a Michelin inspector, a highly qualified restaurant evaluator who needs to remain anonymous in order to do his job. This is a rare and wonderful opportunity to go behind the scenes to learn more about the Michelin star rating system, and it couldn't come at a better time because Michelin recently released its 2019 Michelin Guide California, the first ever statewide edition of the acclaimed restaurant series. Ninety restaurants across the Golden State now have coveted Michelin stars, including spots in San Diego, Los Angeles, and Sacramento. We're going to refer to our guest as Mr. Inspector throughout this interview, so welcome, Mr. Inspector. Thank you very much. It's great to be speaking with you. So before we dig into the main course of our conversation today, the 2019 Michelin Guide California and the Golden State's acclaimed restaurant scene, I want to talk to you about the covert nature of your job. Your anonymity is an essential part of what you do, isn't it? It absolutely is. Um, The anonymous inspections are one of the pillars of the Michelin Guide review process. Um, It guarantees that the inspector had the same experience as any other diner would. Um, You know, we're not going in saying we're from the Michelin Guide. We're not journalists, celebrity journalists or reviewers. So we're not receiving, you know, the best table or extra courses. Um, We're getting treated just as any other guest who would go ahead and make a reservation and just try to experience a restaurant for a night out. I really love that. I love that somebody is is looking out for me, the consumer, because, you know, when you go to eat out, it can be expensive. And, you know, I want to make sure that I get the full value for my money. So, you know, what is it like being a Michelin inspector? Is it fun? It absolutely is. It's it's the best job I've ever had, which is why I've been doing it for almost 13 years now. So I no complaints. I do have to exercise a bit, but that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, put on a little weight if you eat too much. How, how did you go about getting a job like this? Like, how did you get this job without revealing you know, too much? What was your background, broadly speaking, before you became an inspector? Most inspectors are selected from careers in food, wine, or hospitality. So we have chefs, we have restaurant managers, we have um, sommeliers, we have restaurant managers, hotel managers. So basically, it's a wide, various assortment of jobs, kind of all under the umbrella of hospitality. When you're on the clock and inspecting, do you go to these restaurants by yourself, or do you go with others, or or is it a, a mix of the two? Most meals are done solo. The inspectors are going by themselves. Um, And, you know, that's the majority of their job. It's quite 
quite a solo job, but uh, you have to like your own company, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but there are meals that we will go to that it's just quite odd for you know, a solo diner to go if it's you know, someplace that's very celebratory in nature or you know, a special occasion place, then we'll go ahead and pair up and have another inspector. So is there actually like a scorecard that you're filling out or either mentally or physically? Are you like surreptitiously taking notes while you're you know, in the middle of your meal? How does it actually work? So there is a report that we use. Um, the inspectors, when they're in the restaurant, they're not taking any notes. They are just taking everything in um, uh, visually. And um, we do take photos to support our social media accounts. Um, but in terms of notes, it's minimal. Um, you know, sometimes we are faced with a tasting menu that has 24 courses or, you know, however, wow. however many number. We may j- jot notes down for that, but luckily, you know, you're usually given a menu at the end of that kind of meal. But all said and done, once we do go back um, and we're working on the experience of the meal, we are pulling out a report that we fill out, and um, it's pretty comprehensive. We describe each menu item um, in pretty lengthy detail, and we give it a rating. Um, and then that will kind of attribute to the overall score of the meal. Do, do you feel a lot of responsibility to, to you know, like get it right when inspecting a restaurant? I would imagine you do. Absolutely. Um, we definitely want to make sure that um, you know, our first obligation to the Michelin Guide is that we're consistent with the framework that's existed for almost 100 years now. So um, there's deep respect in the community that we serve, and that's the chefs, the community, the staff of the restaurant owners. Um, so, yeah, it's a, very, it's a big responsibility, and we take that quite seriously. Now, I think most listeners know about Michelin stars, but they probably don't know what distinguishes a three-star from a two-star or a one-star restaurant. So let's start at, at one and work our way up. What does a single Michelin star mean for both a restaurant and a diner? Absolutely. So a one-star restaurant is defined as a restaurant that offers high-quality cooking, and it would be a wor- it would be a restaurant that you would say be- would be worth a stop. So if you are on a journey and you know you had a pick of places to go, that would be a place that you'd say you know what that's the one I'm going to choose. That's where I'm going to stop tonight. Um, a two star restaurant is excellent cuisine worth a detour. So you're on your trip, you're on your journey, and this is a restaurant that you're actually going to pull off the road and and go to because it's it's just exceptional. And then a three star restaurant is defined as uh, offering exceptional cuisine worth a special journey in itself. So really just even more than it's a destination. It's not not even just a detour, but you are actually maybe traveling to dine at that restaurant. That's how good it is. Absolutely. And there are only just over 100 restaurants worldwide um, that have been awarded three stars. So just a fraction of the the restaurants that are reviewed globally. Nikki Nakayama of Ennaka earned two Michelin stars. So did Michael Simarusti of Providence. Did you inspect these two L.A. restaurants? And if so, what did you think of them? I did. I did see both restaurants. Um, what, I've been an inspector for 13 years, so I was actually able to see Providence for the 2008 and 2009 Los Angeles editions, as well as more recently uh, for the 2019 California edition. Can you give us a sense of what it's like to dine at these two places? Definitely, definitely. So at Providence, Michael Simrosti is doing you know really elegant seafood-based cuisine. Um, he's using wild-caught, mostly sustainable seafood, um, to which he applies you know a level of personality and and really distinct creativity that you know 
offers a meal that is quite special and unique. Um, there are influences of Mediterranean and Asian cuisine. Um, and, you know, some highlights of dishes that I had were some, you know, lovely Santa, Santa Barbara yellowtail um, dressed with some cucumber and pear and seaweed. And then the unexpected touch of macadamia nuts, which was really quite nice. And then a pear and kombu consomme, which, you know, all of those things alone may not work, but together it was really quite um, an ambitious and really impressive dish. Um, so it's things like that, that that's kind of indicative of, of really the creativity that's going on at Providence. And also just the consistency, like you know when you're going to go to a restaurant that it's not going to be hit or miss, like they're not going to have an off night. Absolutely. To, to, to have visited a restaurant in 2009 and then visit a restaurant 10 years later and it's still, you walk out of there with, you know, happy that, you know, just feeling so good about the meal and just it being so impressive and consistent. That is really um, something to be exact, to be really proud of. What about Ennaka? This is really a, a darling of L.A. and rightfully so. It's really, um, really a personal, unique expression of kind of Japanese cuisine filtered through, you know, the chef's experience, and it was really, really a lovely experience. Um, the chef is using a chef Nakayama is really doing. Um, Unique, unique cooking here. Um, for example, some of the courses, they're kind of Japanese feeling, but very creative and unique and highlighting local product and seasonality. So, for instance, a soup course with shiitake and chestnut dumplings um, had some lotus root, and it was quite simple, but very, quite, you know, very elegant and really, really impressive. Um, another dish I had was some black cod that was really steamed, very delicate, served with some Santa Barbara uni um, and dashi, which, again... Those are very traditional Japanese elements, but it was done with uh, really a great refinement here. You know, so we've talked a lot about the Michelin stars. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Bib Gourmand and Plates Awards as well? Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you brought that up because I do feel like with the Michelin Guide, most people focus on the stars and, and kind of discard the rest. So mm. it, the Michelin Guide is a selection. It's, it's chock full of restaurants that aren't just stars. Um, we have the Plate Distinction, which um, offers you know, uh, very fresh ingredients, capably prepared, a, a very basic good meal. And then up from that, we have the, the Bib Gourmand, which is good, um, good quality cooking at a good value. So this is the kind of place where, you know, is on my own dime, what I want to go spend about $40 for a meal. These would be the places that I would look out for. And all of these awards are included in the Michelin Guide. Absolutely, absolutely. And the guide um, is a selection. It's not a listing. So for California, we had a total of 657 establishments in the book, including Hmm. stars, plates, and bibs. It's a curated experience. Exactly. Okay, so I'd really love to hear about some of your personal favorites in California, whether they were three-star experiences, bib gourmand winners, or whatever. Where are you sending your friends to eat in California? Hmm. Um... I don't have any favorites, but I can <laughs> tell you that I've had some restaurants that, that were, you know, really impressive experiences that I wouldn't mind talking about. How about that? <laughs> okay. It's like, it's like choosing your favorite child, right? It is. It is. I don't have children, <laughs> but I could see how that would work. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay. So, so let's, hear, let's hear about them. Um, in L.A., Kato was, was really a wonderful spot. Um, the chef is 27 years old, Jonathan Yao, and he grew up in San Gabriel Valley. And he's just doing some really creative you know, I don't want to say budget, but I mean, in terms of breaking the bank, it's going to be okay (laughs) on your wallet. Um, And it's a really fun, low-key experience that um, I walked away from. I was just really happy that I had went, and I would definitely love to go back to. 
What kind of cuisine is it? There are some Asian elements to it. Um, you know, some element, some items that I had were, you know, diced amperjack with some tomato water and some vibrant herb oil and chili jam and watermelon radish. So however that wow. sums up. That sounds kind of obscure. <laughs> I'm not even sure what half of that stuff is. I know, right? <laughs> um, but global flavors, global flavors, overall contemporary dining. Um, so that was quite remarkable. Um, uh-huh. Another restaurant that I really um, had a great experience at was up in Mendocino, Harbor House. Um, the chef there is Matthew Kemmerer, and he's cooking at a, a little inn called the Harbor House in, um, in Elk, California. Um, it's a little, really great property that's tucked on a little cove, basically overlooking the water. Um, and he's doing things like using local woods to smoke and grill and fermenting and aging meat in-house, making his own sea salt. Um, it was really a fantastic meal, and that um, also to the setting, you know, not... It was quite. A, it was a quite. I drove up from San Francisco, and you know, I was surrounded by apple orchards and redwoods. So getting there was half the fun too. But uh, it was a remarkable meal. Sounds amazing. Well, you know, this has been a lot of fun for me, Mister Inspector. Uh, thanks so much for all of the insider information, even if we don't know your real name. My pleasure. Mr. Inspector may not be his real name, but the insights he provided today on the California culinary scene are as authentic as can be. The 2019 Michelin Guide California is available at your favorite bookstores, both online and off. And it's a wise investment before any trip to California. As always, you can find links to all of the places we discussed today at our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. Coming up, we'll discuss the Castro, West Hollywood, Hillcrest, and other gay-friendly California destinations with Scott Gatz, CEO and founder of Q Digital. But first, we'll embark on a culinary road trip that takes us deep into the heart of the Central Coast. You're listening to the California Now podcast. Today, we're excited to introduce a new segment to the California Now podcast. Starting now and continuing into the foreseeable future, we're going to introduce you to some of California's most insightful road trippers, people who know the Golden State's highways and byways like the back of their hands. We'll ask them to share their best-kept secrets so you can discover great places to explore while motoring around California. And today... We're pleased to welcome Aida Molenkamp, founder and editor-in-chief of Salt and Wind Travel. Welcome to California Now, Aida. Thanks for having me, Soterios. So, you know, before we dig in, tell us about Salt and Wind Travel. What is it and why did you create it? Sure. So Salt and Wind Travel is a travel company specifically for food lovers. I myself have a background in food editorial, TV, what have you, and was traveling around and realized there wasn't a resource for me and my friends who wanted to go out, travel, explore the world with a food focus. And so we have a few places in the world we specialize in, uh, Mexico, Italy, France. But being a native Californian, obviously California is central to all the work that we do. And, you know, actually on your website, you make a point of saying that California is your first love. What, What do you mean by that? To put it in context, I'm first generation California. My parents came out here from the Midwest and just decided to never leave. And I was raised with a real California beach mentality down in Hermosa Beach, down near Los Angeles. And I grew up exploring the outdoors. So in my DNA is really this love for local and active and getting out and exploring. And I've always loved how this state, the Golden State, just has such diversity. 
And that diversity can be seen in the outdoors. It can be seen on road trips. And as a chef, it can also be seen in the food. And so it's given me this perspective that's just like full of melting pot diversity, whether it's climbing a mountain or going to the beach or it's eating Persian food in downtown LA or eating Korean food, you know, as well. So <laughs> it's that diversity that <laughs> really draws me to it. And and you're an especially devout believer in the virtues of exploring via road trip, right? Most definitely. So I grew up in this huge family. I have five siblings. And my parents <laughs> turned road trips because it was a good way to wrangle everybody. And so we've done RVs. We've done vans. We've done, you know, Ford 150s or just teeny little <laughs> rental cars. And so I've done kind of every kind of road trip up and down the state. And one of my favorite things to do when I have people visiting is to take them on one here in California. You really just get a concept of how many layers there are. Um, and actually, in Salt Wind Travel, one of the things we do is itinerary planning. And one of our most requested planning is for to help people do road trips throughout California. Well, that sounds like the perfect segue into today's road trip adventure. Where are we starting? Where are you taking us? Okay, we are starting in my hometown of Los Angeles and going straight up the coast. I'm talking Los Angeles up the California 101 highway and then doing a little detour to the 154. This takes you through Los Angeles, Ventura. You can sidestep to Ojai if you want. Then you can go through Santa Barbara up through the pass known as Los Olivos area and then over to Paso Robles. And by the way, I believe it's called Paso Robles. That's what my local friends have taught me. Some people call it Paso Robles. <laughs> no matter what you call it, that's the town that we're talking about. Okay. And it sounds like a great place to visit. So that's a really great itinerary. And I bet it's going to be great for listeners too. So, you know, a lot of people fly into LA and this is really a great way to get them to explore more of the state. Uh, So where's our first stop? Yeah, it definitely is a nice way to explore the state. And this is about a three-day, two-night trip. And I have to say, a lot of people think that means weekend. And I can encourage people to the end of my days to do this kind of a trip during the week if you have the ability Mm. because it really means you're going to get a little more attention from locals and from places that you visit. And there's just not going to be as much traffic. So if you do it during the week, I encourage you to stop in Ventura. So Ventura is Ventura and Oxnard are twin cities that are known for all of our great California strawberries. So you can sigh, you know, stop to the side if you see a U-Pick farm or something like that. And depending on the time of year to the end of the season, you'll see all kinds of different strawberries. If you get your hands on gaviotas or seascapes, buy a pallet and use them as your road trip snack because they're delicious. I didn't realize there were different kinds of strawberries. Oh, so many. Everything that we're talking about today, it's like, here's just the tipping point into this whole world of strawberries or uh, all different kinds of flavors. And the other thing that there's a lot of different flavors of in Ventura are oysters. So if you are there on the weekend, then you absolutely must stop at the Jolly Oyster, which is a truck in the San Buenaventura State Beach Park. So you're, I'm talking... (laughs) oceanfront with like the breeze going through your hair and there's a little food truck and they are serving up kumamotos and sea urchin and they have a beet mignonette. I don't know who came up with that idea, but it is genius. (laughs) And you can just go to one of the picnic tables and hang out with your family. And the thing is, this is one of the things I absolutely adore about California right now is that the Jolly Oyster is far, well, farm as in 
Ocean Farm to table. And they're extremely committed to sustainability, which is a big theme that you'll see along this road trip in particular is a love for local and a love for making things last. And so Jolly Oyster just totally embodies that. And just down the street, once you have your belly full, you have to go to the Patagonia headquarters. If, like me, you're into outdoor sports, skiing or hiking or surfing, you most likely have at least one product by them. And the thing is, their headquarters are right there in Ventura. Um, My husband is actually a surfer, and we go there whenever we're in town, mostly because, yes, you can shop, but because they have amazing events. I'm talking independent filmmaker screenings or an impromptu yoga class. So if you really want to take a break and dive into the culture of Ventura, the Patagonia headquarters is a really good cheat sheet for that. That sounds really great. And, you know, going back to the food trucks, I'm just kind of, that boggles the mind. When you think of food trucks, you don't think of oysters. You might think of like burgers or something. But to have a, a food truck that, you know, focuses on sustainable and just fresh oysters, I mean, that's just pretty amazing. For sure. And I think the thing that's so great about the California coast is right now we have people up and down the coast really committed to that sustainable seafood culture. And so you'll see aquaculture, all kinds of different people, including at the Ventura's Farmer's Market, which is Saturdays if you're in town then. It's an incredible farmer's market, has all the kinds of things we already talked about and more. Um, At the Ventura Farmer's Market, there is, well, at least last time, I went there a couple weeks ago, they had a seafood share. So basically, if you've heard of a farm share where you can subscribe to farm produce, they do the same thing with seafood. So you're just seeing these people over and over really committed to that. And also they have all kinds of great different kinds of seafood that you might not be totally comfortable with. Like sea urchin is still not, you know, mainstream for a lot of people, but that part of the coast has some of the best sea urchin in the world, hands down. That's really great. You know, I had no idea there was so much to do in Ventura. <laughs> where, where, where are we heading next? So from Ventura, we're going to head up towards Santa Barbara. And the thing is, this little coast area, just only a few mile drive between the two cities, is one of my favorites. If you got a convertible, which I know a lot of visitors like to do, throw that top down. And you're going to see some of the most famous surf points in this part of the coast. And so you're going to see surfers and great waves. And when you get to Santa Barbara, one of the places that I think is really worth stopping in is right next to the freeway in downtown. So there's this area called the Funk Zone because it's got its own little beat and vibe. And one of the things I really liked seeing out of the Funk Zone in the last few years is that it's become this mini tasting room area. So Santa Barbara and Central Coast has some of the most amazing wines in the world. All you have to do is watch the movie Sideways to know what I'm talking about. And (laughs) in the Funk Zone, you have some of those amazing wineries having their tasting rooms. And the place you're going to want to go first is called the Valley Project. This is by some local winemakers, and they have this map in chalk on the wall of the uh, tasting room that explains to you the geography, so how the winds blow, what different um, valleys that there are that you need to pay attention to to understand why this part of the world makes such phenomenal Pinot Noir and all these wines that they're known for. And so for a local wine 101, you're going to want to go to the Valley Project. And this is a place where you can taste the wines from different wineries, kind of like one-stop shopping. 
This is a place that has a few different wineries who've come together and they have their own wines to taste, but they're from all over the region. So you really get an idea of what a wine that's more coastal versus a wine that's more inland tastes like. And so you'll understand that juxtaposition. If you want a bigger variety of wines to try, then you're going to want to head over to Le Marchand. And that's just maybe a block and a half down the road from the Valley Project. This is owned by Acme Hospitality, who owns some of my favorite things in Santa Barbara. They have great restaurants, but of them all, I really uh, love Le Marchand because they do have so many different uh, wineries that are represented, including some European wineries. And the vibes are kind of a Euro-rustic vibe. I'm talking a zinc-looking countertop and, you know, beautiful beautiful lighting and you walk in and you feel like Paris and Santa Barbara somehow came together in one room. Wow. It sounds like you can almost spend a couple of days at each stop on this road trip. I mean, to really appreciate all all that's offered, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, this is the kind of road trip that I do, no joke, once a year minimum. And a lot of times in the spring and the fall, because the wine is in a different place, the food is different during those times of year. So this is a road trip that once you do it, I'm pretty sure you're going to want to do like me and just do it over and over again and maybe spend more time in Santa Barbara one time, maybe detour to Ojai or spend the night in Ventura. So there's endless variations on this theme. Yeah, and there's so many great places. And, and you know, spontaneity is such a key part of any road trip. Uh, you know, the fact of the matter is you can control your own destiny when exploring by, by car. So do you have any advice for travelers who are accustomed to like a more rigid itinerary? Really what I encourage people to do is breathe into their itineraries. So give yourself hmm. more time than you think you need. Maybe pull over at a town you've never heard of before or a stop that you've never seen. And you're going to have a richer experience. So, for example, in Santa Barbara, the pier is beautiful. Just north of the pier is Ledbetter Beach. And a lot of people just blow past it because of the way that the main streets go through Santa Barbara. But this is a beach that locals hang out at, and they surf it. They do stand-up paddleboarding. You can even do some little Hobie cat sailing right out of there. And so... Something like that might not happen if you're on too rigid of a schedule. I always tell people, if you're at a place where you're liking the vibes, those people probably are doing things that you're going to want to do too. So just like tap into their info and their resources. That's really great advice. Okay, where to next? Well, where to next is this is the big decision you have to make. You're either going to stay on the coast on the one or if you're me, what you're going to do is take the 154. This is a detour that takes you slightly inland. And I think a lot of people don't think of the fact that Santa Barbara and this area has this beautiful inland area. And the 154 goes past the Stagecoach Inn, which was an actual Stagecoach stop back in the day. And I have a personal connection because my aunt used to own this place in the 70s. And it had these ZZ Top type characters, still does to these day, these biker guys who come in on their Harleys and do their rides. It's a famous stop. And if you're there a couple times a week and on the weekends, they have live music and what is, in my opinion, the best tri-tip that you're going to find in this area. Can you explain tri-tip to the uninitiated? Yeah. So basically what happened is the vaqueros came in, ranched in that area, and one butcher was like, hey, I'm going to mix up the butchering cuts, made the (laughs) tri-tip, and we typically... Locals, we say this is our barbecue, which people don't know we have. And so it's dry rubbed with spices, and then it's cooked 
on this grill that's actually also called a Santa Maria grill that raises up and down by pulley system over the core over the coals. So you oh. can go to places throughout 154. There's Los Olivos, grocery, there's all kinds of stops where people serve tri-tip, but my personal favorite is Stagecoach Inn. Okay, that sounds really great. Okay, what else do we have going up uh, California 154? So the thing that really is incredible right now is that we have so much water in the state. And so the wildflowers are looking amazing. So when I was out there a couple weeks ago, I stopped by the Kachuma Lake Reservoir. And there is this beautiful path. It's, you know, already indicated for you as a turnout right there on the highway. And you just pull over and it's, you could probably spend a half an hour here just going to one viewpoint versus another, taking photos and exploring the area. So definitely along 154, you take advantage of the turnouts that are naturally already there that the state has put there for you because they tend to have these phenomenal views. Uh, And then what you want to do from there is head up to Los Olivos. So Los Olivos is one of the cutest little towns around. This is is horse country in California, and so you're going to see lots of ranchers, lots of horses and what have you. And Los Olivos really embodies that. And it's also surrounded with wineries. So to get a taste of both, you're going to want to stop at Los Olivos General Store. That's kind of a one-stop shop for gourmet food, locally made products, and just awesome people. And then for tasting, if you only have time for one, have it be Stolpman, as in S-T-O-L-P, Stolpman Vineyards, uh, because they really do a lot of Rhone varietals. So that means Grenache, Syrah, Merveg, those are red grapes that you're making phenomenal red wines with, and they really represent the best of that Rhone varietal type of wine in this area. So you're going to want to stop for some wine, stop at Los Olivos, and then get on your way. I have to admit that this whole part of California is a bit of a blind spot for me, but it sounds so, so great. I mean, I really need to put this on my to-do list, I feel. Um, now, our road trip adventure is going to be ending in Paso Robles, right? So, so what do we need to know about this last leg of the trip? What you need to know is when you take off from the 154 to Paso Robles, if you like carbs as much as I do, you have to stop in the town of Los Alamos because Bob's Wellbred is there. And this is a guy who just decided to leave L.A. behind and put his passion into bread and now has one of the best bakeries in this part of the state. And once you're all fueled up, you're going to drive over to Paso Robles. And Paso Robles has what a lot of this part of California has are these beautiful plazas, these beautiful town squares. And right off their gorgeous town square is the Hotel Cheval. This is one of those boutique hotels that you're, once you stay there, you're just going to want to go back and back again. They have these, what I call marshmallow bedding, where you kind of fall into the bedding. And they have this great wine bar downstairs. You can try a ton of local wines. But one of my favorite things is that they have a s'mores concierge. So you can sit by their open fire and get s'mores. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Wow. So you can get kind of like, you know, fancy chocolate and uh, graham crackers, and they just bring it right to the fire for you. That's exactly right. In fact, the the wine bar will then also pair that with a port or an after, you know, a dessert wine if you want. So you can really feel just like super luxurious. And if you're looking for something that's a fuller meal than just some s'mores, Thomas Hill Organics is just, I cannot say enough good things about it. I've had brunch, lunch, dinner there. I've taken food away for picnics at wineries, and it's always been fresh, local, and just really creative. So those are my two favorite stops in Paso. 
Well, this is all fantastic stuff. I, I'm ready to gas up and go right now. <laughs> Thanks so much, Aida. Thanks for Yeah, this is one of my favorite stops. I'm going to have to give you even more tips next time so that you can do it and enjoy it yourself. Absolutely. Aida Molenkamp is a veteran food and travel expert and is a great follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Be sure to check out her website, saltandwind.com. And for links to all the places we discussed today, go to visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. My next guest is Scott Gatz, the founder and CEO of Q Digital. It's an LGBTQ-owned and operated media network that includes Queerty and Gay Cities, the world's number one source for LGBTQ travelers. He's a media veteran, a featured speaker at conferences, and he's been interviewed by The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and many others. Welcome to the California Now podcast, Scott. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, this is a travel podcast, and uh, one of the brands in your media empire is a travel site, Gay Cities. What exactly is Gay Cities? Who is it for, and why did you create it? Imagine it's like TripAdvisor or even Yelp, but for the LGBTQ community, where gay people, lesbians, the entire spectrum of LGBTQ come on board and share their the favorite places where to go, stay, and eat in cities all over the world. Uh, we're on every continent except Antarctica. So if you're looking to travel to Asia, or right here in California, you can do that uh, by just finding what fellow travelers have pointed you out to. And an interesting fact about it is that we've also developed a a following of just general mainstream audience where people want to see where does the LGBTQ community find interesting, what hotels, what restaurants, um, and maybe even gay bars that they might want to pop into when traveling around the world. And, And how long have you been doing this? Well, this is our 11th year uh, since we've started the company, and, uh, you know, the project had started a little bit before then. Uh, but it's amazing to see that, you know, we started with just six cities, and now we're in over 230 cities worldwide. So, you know, given the wide acceptance of same-sex marriage and other, you know, societal factors, is it fair to say LGBTQ travel is on the rise? I wouldn't say that LGBTQ travel is on the rise. Uh, we've traveled for such a long time. Uh, I think over the years, uh LGBT people have had the freedom to travel. Uh, you know, the minority of them have children, so they're able to travel during shoulder season or travel really throughout. We, we almost see uh, cities like neighborhoods, so we're able to just go and be. I think what has changed is how cities have really began to market to the LGBTQ community, really trying to get uh, travelers to come towards their city. You know, obviously, New York, L.A., San Francisco, Miami have always marketed to our community. But now we're seeing smaller towns all over, uh, whether that's in Kentucky, in in Oklahoma, or North Carolina. They're all asking, you know, telling us, hey, why don't you come visit? You know, I've always considered California to be a leading LGBTQ travel destination. You mentioned L.A. and San Francisco. Uh, is that the case for the state of California? Yeah, absolutely. I I think California generally has been an incredibly welcoming uh, place for LGBT people, you know, historically as a place to live, but also reaching out to our community and trying to get them to come. I mean, San Francisco, when when people think about um, the LGBT movement, they often think about San Francisco and Harvey Milk and the Castro. And so that's been one for, for a very long time. But L.A. as well with West Hollywood has long been a draw and Palm Springs as a, um, as a kind of a, a, a desert 
comfortable, you know, resort town. Uh, and even to a lesser extent, uh, historically, but it's really been growing recently, is San Diego as a, as a place um, that's a real draw for LGBTQ travelers. Do you have any actual, like, research that points to California as being LGBTQ friendly? Well, something we do every year is we run our Best of Gay Cities, where all of our members vote on their favorite destinations around the world in, you know, 16 different categories. And consistently over the years, California cities have won various different categories. This most recent year, 2018, um, San Francisco won Most Welcoming City, uh, and Palm Springs won the most laid-back vibe of all the the Hmm. destinations you can go to in the world. All right, let's dig down a little bit on some of the key hubs for LGBTQ travel in California. What makes San Francisco so welcoming? Well, San Francisco in general has, um, you know, such such a welcoming... uh, environment the city itself the history of the city you know if you think about it, it as a place for prospectors as a place for explorers to go and forge their own path that ethos kind of kept with the city over all these years and and in the the 60s and 70s you know the 60s the summer of love and the 70s was really the burgeoning of the gay liberation movement um, across the the country but here in San Francisco in particular and with Harvey Milk being one of the first um you know, openly gay elected officials, you know, here we have you know, a wonderful base of history that this town has always been a place. And the Castro, uh, right in the center of San Francisco is the LGBT neighborhood, um, was always kind of a hub of activity. Whether And later on when the AIDS crisis hit, it became a hub of a community that was helping and taking care of each other. And it still has that history. We have a history museum. It has the bars. It has uh, the community health centers. And it just you can just feel it in the air. Right. And it's, a, and it's a, a vibe where you feel safe, not only welcomed, but safe, right? Absolutely. You know, we, um, you know, at, like all cities, we're big and growing cities. So, you know, you always have to be aware and alert in any city. But you will not be targeted because you're a an LGBT person. You can feel comfortable wearing, you know, walking down the street, wearing what you want, holding your partner's hand, uh, and, you know, even, you know, checking out a person you find attractive, um, whoever that may be, uh, all in, a, in really in a safe, comfortable city. Let's talk a little bit about Palm Springs. You mentioned it won uh, your most laid-back vibe <laughs> prize uh, globally. What, what's the draw there in Palm Springs? You know, the draw there is, is in some ways, is an escape. You know, if we think about resort towns, when you want to get away, you want to be able to be in a place where you can just chill out and relax. But the unique thing about Palm Springs is it's not just um, a beach vacation or a place where you just have to lay by the pool. Um, there's no beach there at all. You just could lay by the right. pool. But there's, there's uh, you know, there's terrific restaurants there's uh, a gay nightlife, a really thriving, um, popular nightlife. So there's energy, and then there's art, and there's architecture with the mid-century modern um, architectures throughout that town. Uh, there's a little bit of everything there. Yeah, music festivals as well. Yeah, very much so. You know, Coachella out um, out there, and uh, more and more things to do. And even, I'm not a golfer, but even just the surrounding areas, I mean, I don't know how many golf courses they have there. So there's always something to do there. Now, I haven't spent much time in West Hollywood. What makes that such an appealing destination for LGBTQ travelers? I think in, in the same ways as the Castro, West Hollywood has become kind of the epicenter of 
LGBTQ life there. Um, in particular, LGBT or gay bars have, uh, you know, really thrived there. It's where the L.A. Gay Pride Parade happens, right there in West Hollywood. Um, and it's a you really feel a sense of community. While L.A. is not always the most walkable city, uh, West Hollywood is a very walkable stretch, you know, where you, you can park your car, you can stay at a hotel just off the strip, and wander around and hop from restaurants to bars and just feel the the kind of the energy of that city. Um, and again, it, you know, just like the rest of California, incredibly welcoming. That's great. Now, you know, I know that uh, LGBTQ travel goes beyond three or four cities in California. What are some of the hidden gems for this audience? And, and what are the key attributes of them? Whether you're gay or straight, the, California gives you so many amazing choices. Um, and we have such great weather and and kind of such great draws. Um, I mean, obviously, Napa and Sonoma are really gems for everyone. Uh, but Napa and Sonoma have really done a good job of also making it very welcoming for the LGBTQ community. Um, unlike the cities, there's there's really no gay bars. There's not that kind of nightlife. But uh, you'll find all the things that anyone finds amazing, some great vineyards, some of the best food in the entire world. And those are all things that are a great draw for our community. And then we do have special events, like we have something called Gay Wine Weekend in July, where um, where hundreds of people come together and go to wineries that are either owned and operated by LGBTQ people or, um, or work there or run the place. And uh, it's a great way to kind of connect with the LGBTQ side of Sonoma. But uh, you'll find people just enjoying what everyone else enjoys there. And I think it's safe to say also that if you're an LGBTQ traveler, you can rest assured that, you know, as you were saying before, you know, you're, you're going to be treated just like everyone else. Yeah, I think that's well, you asked about how things have changed for for gay travelers. And that's the most important that really, no matter where you go, you know, we used to have to tell people where are gay-friendly hotels, and every hotel is gay-friendly now. Um, every restaurant is welcoming. I mean, and especially in California, you'd be very hard-pressed to find places, especially along the coast, where you're not welcomed with open arms. And that's um, a really special reason to, to travel all over California. Okay, so you know we've spent a bit of time talking about where to go, but I'd, I'd like to pivot now to focus on when. So you know, different cities hold their pride events at different times of the year. Many are in June, but not all of them. So can you provide us a little a cheat sheet? Absolutely, and it's one of my favorite things about California is that our prides are spread out. So you could actually attend most all of the prides in California if you were so inclined. Um, you know, LA Pride really kicks off the season in early June. Uh, and L.A. Pride, as I said, happens in West Hollywood. It's a big parade and a two-day music festival right there in the park in West Hollywood and brings people from all over. And just the, the energy and the, you know, the weather's always good at that time, uh, really getting people excited in L.A. And then moving on, San Francisco does its Pride the very last weekend in June. And over a million people come to San Francisco during that time, straight, gay, whatever it may be, to really celebrate whether it's in the parade or a whole two-day street festival with uh, six or seven different music stages uh, with big headliners on a main stage, but also if you're into particular types of music, you can find some of the substages to, to really find music and dance in a way that you can never find anyone else. 
And the best thing about San Francisco Pride, as in many of these, is, you know, I can look around and I just see everyone there. It's no longer gay pride. It's just pride. Come on out, enjoy, and visit. And for myself, on a personal note, I have a a 10-year-old son, so I want to make sure that that I'm taking him to places that are responsible and that are open, that that are family-friendly. And I've always felt that about San Francisco Pride. And in particular, there's an organization that called Our Family Coalition that takes over a playground right in the middle of the festival, and it only allowed, allows kids with parents to come and sets up activities, art activities, and uh, you know, face painting and things like that, and they can play in the playground right in the midst of all this music and festivity. And I think that's one of the, you know, the, the key hallmarks that all types of people can come and enjoy this parade. Right. That's really great. It sounds like you can, you can almost spend a better part of the year celebrating pride in California. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I didn't even mention, you know, Oakland in September, Silicon Valley is late August, Sacramento's in early June. You really could, if you, if you were so inclined, you can just set up a map and go to all of them. Well, you have shared a wealth of information with us, Scott. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So where should we send listeners who want more insights? Sure. So you can visit uh, GayCities.com, obviously, to uh, search through. And we list all of our ca- uh, California cities, even ones that we didn't mention, like Bakersfield and Fresno. Uh, we'll, we're happy to kind of connect you to the best places to go stay and eat anywhere, you, anywhere around California or really anywhere around the world. That's perfect. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Scott Gatz is the founder and CEO of Q Digital. He just told you where to go for more information on LGBTQ travel. For links to every single place we discussed today, be sure to visit our website, visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. And you can learn more about California and plan your next visit at visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. That's where you'll find our podcast and much more information. We'll provide links to all of the people and places you learn about here on the show. That's visitcalifornia.com slash podcast. We hope you like the new road trip segment we debuted on this episode. Aida Molenkamp talked about two delicious types of strawberries she found in Ventura, multiple Pinot Noir options in Santa Barbara, and mouth-watering tri-tip barbecue in the Santa Maria Valley. There'll be more road trip segments coming your way on this podcast, so keep listening. And if you're already in planning mode, check out our Road Trip Republic online hub. It has more than 50 detailed road trip itineraries waiting for you. You can find it all at visitcalifornia.com slash roadtrips. <laughs>